0: Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, God is one. Amen. I must admit that even I don't like reading every part of the Bible. For example, maybe getting through the census and numbers, that's kind of tough. And today's gospel is another type of those tough passages. I mean, I don't know about you, but I haven't seen these verses on the plaques you find around people's homes or posted on refrigerator magnets or cross stitch and framed to be hung on the mantle because these are passages we like to read over fast so that we can get to the happy parts, the comforting parts. But one reason we have the lectionary is to keep us honest and there are two related and deeply haunting parts to this passage. A message about false Christ and one about the second coming of Christ. And if you get out your Bible later and you read the context around this passage, you'll see there is more scary stuff discussed in this chapter of St. Matthew's gospel. I mean right before this passage, Jesus has foretold the coming destruction of the Jewish, Jewish temple and the abomination of desolation foretold by Daniel. Right after this passage, Jesus tells us to watch for the signs of his coming as we do the change of the season and the leaves of the fig tree and his discussion to be ready for his coming at any hour. One way you may try to escape the hard words that Jesus has for us is to project them into the future. When we do that, we can sort of think this is something that will happen in some future time that I can forget about it for now and deal with it later much like we often want to do with our own death. And yet one aspect of Christianity embodied in the Latin phrase, Mori," remember you must die, is to keep death in front of us. And we should remember that these words were especially hard from Jesus for the disciples because they thought that Jesus was literally going to come back in their lifetimes when he says, truly I say to you that not one of this generation will have passed away until all these things have taken place. But then people started to die. Good people fell asleep in the Lord, and they realized that they had misunderstood, perhaps, the full mystery of Jesus' prophecies here. In fact, if you read this whole chapter, you'll see there's a lot of shifting between various times and places, and it's hard to quite understand what Jesus is talking about. Specifically, at any one of these given phrases, I think that like many passages of the Bible, this is... A multi-layered discussion you can and moreover you should read this passage as simultaneously talking about things that have already happened are happening now and will happen in the future from the perspective of the past we could easily take Jesus's words and apply them to his passion and crucifixion wherever the body is there the eagles or vultures be gathered together and immediately after the tribulation of those days the Sun will be darkened the powers of the heavens will be shaken Recall how St. Matthew himself will later tell us that there was darkness all over the land at Jesus' crucifixion, and that the curtain of the temple was torn and the earth shook. In some sense, the temple was destroyed then by Jesus' self-giving sacrifice. The sacrifice of sacrifices was offered on the cross. And then Matthew says in our gospel passage, will, quoting Jesus, then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. In Jesus' resurrection and ascension, we see a fulfillment of this passage, and through the sending out of his angels. Recall, that means messenger, not necessarily spiritual beings in this particular case, because maybe it means the apostles who are sent to gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the earth to the other. And from our side of history, we can see the conquering of the nations by Christianity, where no earthly king is Lord, But Jesus is Lord of all. But there's also the perspective of the future. We definitely see Jesus talking about his second advent, the moment of dread judgment when the sun and moon and stars are truly darkened, for they will look as black as coal in comparison to the light of Christ. Here the mourning of all the nations is for those whom the Lord has prepared his kingdom, as well as for those who will not experience it. For in this light, everything will be made manifest, not only all the unspeakable evils that we have done to God and to our fellow man, but the minuscule things, the things we've done in love of God and our neighbor. And this is a scary thought. I mean, even St. John Chrysostom doesn't really like this passage either. He says, Woe is me for that fearful day, for though we ought to rejoice when we hear these things, we feel pain, we're dejected, and our countenance is sad. Or is it only me that feel this way? And you rejoice at hearing these things. For upon me at least there comes a kind of shudder when these things are said. And I lament bitterly and groan from the very depth of my heart. For I have no part in these things, but in those that are spoken afterwards, that are said unto the virgins, unto him that buried the talents that he would received, unto the wicked servant. For this cause I weep, to think from what glory we are to be cast out, from what hope of blessings, and this perpetually and forever to spare ourselves a little labor. Indeed, that's where I want to bring us back to the meaning of this passage in the present, how we we must not become complacent in moving this passage into the indefinite future where it's all too easy to forget about it or just leave it as something that's already happened, but to interpret it as all happening at this very moment, at this very second, at this moment, some might argue that more than any other time in the history of mankind, we are surrounded by false Christs. I note that the word here in Greek is not antichrist, but pseudo-Christ. Pseudo means false in the sense of an impostor, like pseudoscience. Pseudoscience is false science. It looks good, though. It looks real. It sounds good. It's believable. And we've certainly been exposed to a lot of that over the past few years. So you can understand what a pseudo-Christ might be. We live in an age and place of such riches. No matter how poor any of you may be, we live a life of luxury compared to the people in many parts of the rest of this world and in other times of history. We've been given not only material goods, but an abundance of riches with respect to knowledge and the opportunity to exercise our spiritual gifts without the fear of real persecution. But therein lies the very danger of the imposture we now face. We put our faith and the pseudo-Christ of modern health and medicine that makes it all too easy to believe that we will most likely be granted some time to grow old before we die and have the opportunity to tidy up our lives rather than the all-too-real truth that we could be taken away at any moment. We put our faith in the pseudo-Christ of made-to-order spirituality, presumptively believing that we know what's right rather than submitting to the church established by Christ and sustained by His headship and the vital blood of the Holy Spirit. We put our faith only in the pseudo-buddy Jesus rather than into his complete fullness. Man, brother, friend, yes. Also all holy, all love, all light, eternal, beyond any other descriptor, but also come to be our judge. It's in that ultimate fullness of the God-man that will return when we encounter not the false, but the real Christ. Our giving over to all the pseudo-Christ will be self-evident and will be our judgment and the cause of our mourning. But in the Eucharist, we routinely encounter Christ. And in that encounter, we see the sign of the Son of Man in heaven as he comes down to us with power and great glory, transforming bread and wine into his very presence and encounter with the living God. And this is why we say we must prepare ourselves diligently with self-examination, fasting, confession, and most importantly, constant repentance. We must turn away, repent, and reject all of those pseudo-Christs. We must submit ourselves to the Lordship of Christ. And this is no easy task, but it's our only task. Let me quote Chrysostom again on this passage. For this cause I weep to think from what glory we are to be cast out, from what hope of blessings, and this perpetually and forever to spare ourselves a little labor. For if indeed this were a great toil and a grievous law, we ought even so to do all things. Nevertheless, many of the remiss would seem to have at least some pretext, a poor pretext indeed, yet would they seem to have some, that the toil was great and the time endless and the burden intolerable. But now we can put forward no such such objection. What circumstance most of all will gnaw us no less than hell at that time, when for want of a slight endeavor and a little toil, we shall have lost heaven and the unspeakable blessings, For both time is short, and the labor small, and yet we faint and are supine. Thou strivest on earth, and the crown is in heaven. Thou art punished of men, and art honored of God. The race is for two days, and the reward for endless ages. The struggle is a corruptible body, and the rewards an incorruptible. Chrysostom continues, And apart from these things, we should consider another point also, that even if we do not choose to suffer any of the things that are painful for Christ's sake, we must in other ways most assuredly endure them. For neither though thou shouldest not have died for Christ, wilt thou be immortal. Neither though thou shouldest not have cast away thy riches for Christ, wilt thou go away hence with them. These things he requires of thee, which also he should not require them. Thou wilt have to give up, because thou art mortal. He willeth thee to do these by thy choice, which thou must do by necessity so much only he requires to be added that it be done for his sake. Since that these things befall men and pass away, cometh to pass of natural necessity. Seest thou easy the conflict, what it is, all, what it is altogether necessary for thee to suffer, that choose to suffer for thy sake, let this only be added, and I have sufficient obedience. The gold which thou intendest to lend to another, this lend to me, both at more profit and in greater security. Thy body, wherewith thou art going to warfare for another, make it to war for me. For indeed I surpass thy toils with recompenses in the most abundant excess. Yet thou in all other matters preferest him that givest thee more as well in loans and in marketing and in welfare and in warfare. But Christ alone, when giving more and infinitely more than all, thou dost not receive. And what is this so great hostility? What is this so great enmity? Where will there be any excuse or defense left for thee when the reasons for which thou preferst man to man avail not to induce thee to prefer God to man? Likewise, let us return to Mori for a moment. This phrase isn't really intended to be morbid. Instead, it was intended much like St. John Chrysostom's words here, a reminder of the fleeting nature of our life. When we're riding high, to remember that, as they say, we all put our pants on one leg at a time. We're all going to the same destination. It's a call to lead a virtuous, good, and meaningful life, whether we get another day or many decades. So I urge you and myself to not only think about the future judgment and maybe. Really, not to think about it at all because it's too easy to like just put that off into the future as a proxy, but put before you the judgment that Christ puts in your past, you're uniting with Christ's sufferings and death by your baptism in your present, the opportunities He's provided through His church to experience today that judgment that you will experience one day right now through constant acknowledgement of our failing with respect to our loving God and our neighbor, loving our neighbor with our whole heart, our whole body, our whole soul, our whole mind, through confession and acknowledgement of your sins, you will be forgiven. It's not a question, it's a statement. You will be forgiven by our loving God, period. And by partaking in the Eucharist, we will experience his divine presence, and thereby our mortal bodies will experience his judgment yet we will come away fed and strengthened by that encounter. As St. John tells us today in his first epistle, know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth had not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous." He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. It's easy to read this like, I'm a sinner, I do bad things, and therefore, you know, I'm evil and I'm with the devil. That's not what St. John is saying. St. John is saying that by joining yourself with Christ, God came down to do the dirty work. He's the one that's destroying the works of the devil in us. Yes, we have to strive with him. Yes, we have to try not to sin. We have to trust in him. We have to be humble. We have to let him judge us. But when we do that, he will destroy the sin within us. We will not sin. We'll turn away from the pseudo-Christ and embrace the one and only genuine Son of God. The only thing that's real. You're called to stop being selfish to co-suffer with Christ, to humbly accept your failings, to, as St. John says, appear as the sons of God we already are. This is the message of love that we should have on our mind as we face his loving, refining judgment in the Eucharist today. And may we, by God's grace, be very members and corporate of his mystical body and thereby joined with him throughout all eternity. Talks at Advent homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.